In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Stories regularly circulate in church. Whether we're unpacking biblical narratives or sharing anecdotes from our own lives, good news changes us in the telling. Certain stories, though, get less airtime within the saintly cloud of witnesses. Christians are prone as the next person to gossip behind closed doors. We share certain stories in voices that barely break a whisper. And that may be a crying shame, because God's good news lies hidden in those tales, too. Many of us were raised to believe that if something doesn't build up the hearer and the teller, best not to chatter. It's a good prudence test. But sometimes, I think it keeps us from stumbling onto God's good news in our lives. Brave spiritual communities find God's grace turning even the most sobering accounts into salutary testimonies full of hope, rich in hard-won wisdom. What sort of stories should we dare to pass along? Believe it or not, the gospel compels us to bear faithful witness to everything God turns around right in our lives, from the seemingly mundane chronicles to the more colorful ones, you know, the kind that paint us in an honest light. Because redemption stories need to be heard. They dismantle our egocentric habits and character defects that our culture often leads us to idolize. The gift of grace we receive by faith breaks us open to speak of God's salvation, shaking up our lives through no merit of our own. This is what makes personal testimony so potent. We are spiritually poorer when those communal riches are not in circulation. Today's lectionary pulls out one such heirloom from our tradition. Salacious and steamy as any gossip-worthy family secret, this feature from the Hebrew scriptures leaves us wondering about David's legendary reputation as a man after God's own heart. David's hubris, lust, and murderous rage get top billing in this story. But buried there are also glints of God's grace, glimmering in that carnage wreaked by David's unbridled sin. The biblical storyteller flags spring as the season where kings go out to battle. Conspicuously, David stays at home. Even if we wanted to read it as a Staycation, lifting up commendable self-care, David quickly shows his true colors. His royal privilege shatters the lives of Bathsheba and her unsuspecting husband, the valiant military captain Uriah the Hittite. David takes what David wants without regard for God's law nor any care for neighbor. Bathsheba's anything but seductive purification ritual was getting her ready to go to the temple to renew divine and communal connections, as was the monthly custom of Israelite women. And the narrative makes no bones about David's sacrilege, sinning against Bathsheba, Uriah, the whole of Israel, and yes, God. 
Since David can't contrive a plausible way to make Uriah look like the father of Bathsheba's baby, David sends Uriah to the fiercest battlefront to snuff out his life like just another wartime casualty. Only David's secret won't stay hidden. In case you're wondering what comes next after today's cliffhanger, I'm going to tell you, God activates the rumor mill to elucidate David's sins. That part is in next Sunday's segment from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Prophet Nathan gets the unseemly scoop directly from the Lord, and then Nathan gives David's whole kingdom something to whisper about through a masterful parable that prompts David's own self-indictment. You don't want to miss that classic, thou art the man confrontation. Better be back here next week. David is no mere object lesson on human corruption. His power-addicted heart gets moved to repentance by the greater sway of the Holy Spirit and reparations that David then pursues as God's justice and mercy guide David to address the harms his actions caused. These mark a new trajectory for Israel. So what good news is here in this eyebrow-raising story for us? here in this faith community. What wisdom, what hope can we find in a tale that really seems better suited to the shadows than shouted from the rooftops? Perhaps most of all, we find ourselves in this story relieved of the lie that sin is a personal and private matter. Even if we'd rather believe it's safer when it's kept secret, carried in silence, Sin destroys us. The truth is, sin shows us that we are all in this together. God's law of love brings us all up short with its call to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Each and every one of us has interfered with the flourishing of neighbor and stranger, whether we've done it consciously or through inadvertent sin. In the end, sin is communal, not personal. It compromises our connection with our Creator. Like David, what we do once we find God calling us to repent, that's the most important part of our unfolding saga in the tale of what we have done and left undone. If you came to this church from another denomination, not this morning, but over the long trajectory. If you came here from another place, as I did, you've probably heard Paul's words repeated with regularity. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Some of us know that one by memory. It's a refrain that we don't revisit too often in most Episcopal churches, but, but we did say it today in the psalm, you might have noticed. God's grace and forgiveness are the much more favorite in the scripture's perennial themes. And God's redemption, indeed, ought to prompt our grateful rejoicing. Sometimes we don't even share that good news, preferring murmured critiques behind closed doors, pointing fingers at somebody else's misdoing. Such behavior distances us from God's grace, inclusive grace that invites us all to come clean so that God can transform us as we face our sins bravely together. 
Even David Brooks, who is not an Episcopalian nor a professed Christian, notes how few people speak about sin anymore. In his book, The Road to Character, Brooks makes the case for reclaiming sin as a necessary piece of our mental furniture because it reminds us life is a moral affair. Swapping words like virtue, character, evil, and vice for less weighty ones like mistakes, errors, weakness, doesn't make the moral stakes of life any less real, Brooks contends. Such diminishment of our ways of speaking about sin just brushes it under the rug, but that doesn't do away with the danger. Brooks cautions that sin, when it's committed over and over again, hardens our loyalties into lesser loves. Higher love, God's love, leads us to look at our sin squarely. When we do, we can start unearthing those communal resources necessary for our healing and growth. Brooks sees that important reclamation of moral vocabulary and moral tools that have been handed down to us by prior generations as an important work, a necessary work to aid us in our own moral struggles. Such heirlooms are desperately needed, Brooks argues, because sin is communal, baked into our nature and handed down through the generations. We are, after all, all sinners together. That's Brooks' words. <laughs> and I think he sounds downright biblical when he keeps insisting that sin is communal. So why wouldn't the solutions also be? Brooks brings me back to this daily calling that we each have given ourselves to, living into those baptismal promises that we make in community, saying that we will, with God's help, resist evil, and whenever we fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. It's been a little while since we've had a baptism here in the middle of Sunday worship, and I'm really looking forward to getting back to that formative practice as COVID precautions allow, because that sacramental reminder that we all face sin together, not just on our own, we need that. I need that. Brooke's words hit home for me in worship a few weeks ago. It was Sunday. We were at the part of the confession and absolution that I always look forward to because it's this moment of grace reminding us that God throws God's arms around us, right? <laughs> we don't have to get it right. We can come here as sinners. And I found myself being a little bit convicted that morning when we prayed together. You see, we were asking for God's reconciliation and justice to come among us through the words of the litany of repentance that was developed in 2015 by the Episcopal Church's Standing Committee on Liturgy and Music. I can't remember being in a church service where we incorporated that litany before, either here or elsewhere, though I know our wider church has been very intentionally working to name and address sins of racism and white supremacy that have marred our communal life since long before the days of Samuel Seabury. So having already committed myself to the work of anti-racism years ago, I, I was really a little undone by how uncomfortable I felt at those penitential prayers that we spoke that day. It felt like we'd fast-forwarded straight into the middle of Lent, where 
you know, the language of sin is to be expected. Even though I knew that those prayers were intentionally lifted up to help amplify the Micah Project's invitation to all of us to join a sacred ground dialogue circle this coming fall, I still walked away that Sunday feeling a little funny. I was freshly back from vacation. I was happy to be back here singing unmasked. And my own cognitive dissonance at that communal language of sin in such a warm, beloved, sacred space, well, it really took me by surprise. And I think it was God's wake-up call prodding me to see that some folks don't ever get to take a racism break on Sundays or any other day of the week. You know, it seems like yesterday that I picked up Barbara Brown Taylor's book, Speaking of Sin, as a newly confirmed Episcopalian, but this book's 20 years old by now. And it showed me that Episcopalians can and do speak plainly about sin. Taylor recently joined Dr. Catherine Meeks of Atlanta's Center for Racial Healing and Equity on a podcast that they put out called A Brave Space. And that day, they didn't speak explicitly about sin, but there were some stories shared about brave moments. And the ones Taylor mentioned were a little different in tone than the brave moments I've heard Dr. Meeks tell about when she's been among us at All Saints. Brave space bonds the speaker and the hearer in healing ways that break sin's death grip in our lives. The bravest spaces I've ever known are, have been those forged within recovery communities where stories of healing and transformation are shared as if lives depend on their communal circulation. Hard-won wisdom, grace, hope, these are all passed along in such sacred spaces where testimonies gleam pure as gold. At its best, the church can create such brave space whenever we risk sharing our stories of transformation. The prayers we pray in this place regularly name our aspiration to live as people who are called out of sin into righteousness, out of death into life. Whatever tales we choose to circulate in this community, may our witness Point us always to God's good news. Our sin, whether it's ours or ours or anybody else's, is no match for Jesus' justice, mercy, and love. May we ever be changed in that miraculous telling. Amen. Amen.